0: We'll be looking at Psalm 46 tonight um, as we kind of process some of the different emotions that God gives us the capacity to work through. And uh, in this psalm, you'll probably recognize a verse um, that gets qua- uh, quoted pretty often in different contexts, and I hope that uh, we begin to see an even richer meaning for it tonight. But in Psalm 46, it kind of... The emotion that's getting dealt with and processed is the emotion of fear. And, uh, and that's a big one. It's going to, uh, you know, certainly one sermon doesn't get us through it. And, uh, but hopefully we'll begin the conversation and this will be beneficial. So this is Psalm 46 from the Word of the Lord God is our refuge and strength of very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar worn foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when, her morning, when the morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters His voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So come and behold the works of the Lord. How he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow. He shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak in to the realities of life, um, that you don't stay abstract, that you don't stay distant, that you don't stay uh, naive or sentimental, dear Lord, but you have given us the capacity to work through the hard things that we feel day in and day out as parents, as children, as brothers and sisters, as spouses as friends, as workers, as students. In all of those contexts, dear Lord, you give us tools. So I pray that you would equip us tonight through your scripture to begin to process fear. Be with us, dear Jesus. Touch our hearts. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Now, I may lose a, bit of, a little bit of uh, credibility with this opening illustration. Maybe a lot of credibility. But Elizabeth and I, we don't do a great job of keeping up with current events, but we do try to come into contact with one news source every day for at least a few moments. And the news source through which Elizabeth and I get our understanding of the economy, politics, geopolitical situations, all that kind of stuff, the main news source where we kind of understand the world is Stephen Colbert. I actually think maybe we might actually be wiser for it, which is probably the problem. But um, if you're familiar with Colbert, he's kind of a satirist, um, and he's, in the simplest terms, he's the fake conservative news, and he follows Jon Stewart, who's the fake liberal news, and they mock, there's a lot of self-mockery that goes on in their programming, Uh, they're primarily actually comedians. But they actually hold some public events every now and then, and they actually try to affect culture and politics a little bit. That's what's interesting, is they actually cross over into kind of doing some serious stuff, or semi-serious stuff, periodically. And two years ago, John Stewart on his TV show, The Daily Show, which comes on right before the Colbert Report on Comedy Central, um, announced that he was going to have a march in Washington. And he really did this. And he declared that on November, or, sorry, sorry, October 31st, 2010, John Stewart was going to lead uh, the Rally to Restore Sanity. And he actually held this march in, on Washington Mall in Washington, D.C., the Rally to Restore Sanity. And what he was doing is he was making fun of how insane we get in the 24-7 news cycle, about how fear-driven it is. And the motto for the Rally to Restore Sanity was this, let's take it down a notch for America. And when he announced that, a couple of months before that date, on October 30th, the programming that came on immediately afterwards was the Colbert Report. And Stephen Colbert got up and he announced that on that same day, he was going to have the March to Keep Fear Alive. (laughs) And the the motto for the March to Keep... And he held this event, they held it in concert, it was kind of a big joke, but kind of fun at the same time. Um, The March to Keep Fear Alive, the motto for it was... Because America is built on three things, freedom, liberty, and the fear that someone might take your freedom and liberty. (laughs) But they're kind of poking fun at what I think is all true, and I don't think I have to spend any time proving, which is fear is the emotion that is used in the 24-7 news cycle. It is the main thing they're getting us with, right? They're grabbing our attention with, they're selling their stories with, they're selling their advertisements with. And we love fear because fear is powerful. Fear of failure can make you wildly successful. Fear of being out of shape, fear of having the wrong type of body can make you look great. Fear is, it is very powerful. In fact, in a lot of senses, I would say in a place like Stanford, there's a sense in which fear is coached up. Because they see, this is such a valuable tool for making you successful. Let's rely on it. Let's use it effectively. We We love fear. We would, in some senses, the most shocking thing about Scripture, about the purpose and the motivation for living life, whether it's within your marriage, within your friendships, within your job, for doing those things well, the motivation is love, and when you're really encountering the gospel for the first time, you'll get completely baffled by that notion. So what you're saying is, I can be driven in my career by something called love, that actually should, feels foreign to us because we rely so deeply on fear. We love fear. And what's interesting about Scripture, when I was looking at this passage, is the command that is given more often in Scripture than any other command. Not, to, not love Jesus, not love the Lord your God, not know other gods, not love your neighbor. The command that's given more often than any of those is actually do not fear. Do not be afraid. God gives that command to His people more than anything else. And so in Psalm 46, we begin to look through that notion of fear. And so I want to look at kind of what fear is and then how fear is processed in this passage. The first thing, what fear is, and fear is this. Fear is the belief that you have control. Actually, that's not entirely true. Fear is the thing that comes from believing you have control. It's living in the illusion of control. We don't know the specific circumstances of this psalm, but a cursory glance at Israel's history reveals hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, generations and generations, of instability. Of geopolitical, of religious instability. And in this psalm, as they're processing fear, what's happening The first thing that's happening is the psalmist is breaking down the illusion of control. He starts with this conclusion. He tells us where he's going to go. God's our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. And then he begins to spell out the instability of the world. The first thing he does, he starts to break down our illusion of control. So we won't fear, even though the earth gives way. Even though the mountains moved into the sea. Though the waters were in foam and the mountains actually tremble at the swelling of the sea. What the psalmist is doing here in verses 2 and 3, but also in verse 6, the nations rage and the kingdoms totter, he utters his voice and the earth melts, the psalmist is doing this, he's taking the things, the two things that we think, if anything is stable in this world, these two things are stable, and he's saying, don't you see even those aren't stable? He's taking nature, and he's taking civilizations. If anything is stable, it's that the earth doesn't move, right? I thought that when I lived in Alabama. It seemed like a sure bet there. Then I moved to the Bay Area. Right? But the, but the psalmist is saying, if there's anything that's stable, if there's anything you can trust, if there's anything that won't shake, it'll be the ground, right? No. Even the ground shakes. If there's anything you can trust in, it's that the sea stays where the sea is. It doesn't. See, he's taking the things that we think above all... If nothing else, we can trust that these things remain the same. There's some control. There's some some normality here. There's there's some repetition we can trust. The sea stays where the sea is, and the ground doesn't shake. And he's saying, no, no, no. The earth shakes. And the seas move. And then verse 6, he says, And not only that, the kingdoms totter and the nations rage. He's saying, not only can you not even trust the ground to stay in place, and the seas to stay in place, civilizations fall. The two things above anything else, that would if we should be able to expect some regularity in life, it should be in nature and in civilizations. Right? If you get hundreds of millions of people together and build an economy around that, pour in trillions and trillions of dollars, we should expect that to kind of last. And it doesn't. That's a lot of resources devoted to being stable, isn't it? And it's still not stable. It still falls apart. The first thing he's doing is saying, he's saying the two most possible stable things you can imagine are not stable. He's destroying our notion of control. Civilizations and nature. And what the psalmist is doing is he's giving us the two, at least these won't change us the things about which we should be able to say, at least this won't change. At least I can trust this to remain stable. And the implication is this. If you can't trust the ground to remain stable, and if you can't trust civilizations to remain stable, if you can't trust those things, everything else is game. Our sense of control is an illusion. And it's an illusion that we're desperate to believe in and our sense of control in our lives are all the things about our own life that we are saying, but at least at the end of the day, I've got this. What are your at least I have thises? That's the question. Maybe it's financial for you. Yeah, at least I've squared some things away financially. At least I have that. That can't be taken. Maybe it's worked out for you socially. At least I have some good friends. Family. Maybe you're looking at people who have family. But, or you're looking at your family like, you know, I've got a spouse. I have children that are hard, but I love them. At least there's some normal, stable things in my life. Maybe it's your moral record. At least I have this. I, with college students, I have so many college students that come to college, and they're big, at least I have this. The, the big at least I have this of the Christian college students that show up at RUF is this at least I'm moral. If nothing else, I can look at the rest of campus, I can see these people smarter than me, more successful than me, more well-liked than me. And if nothing else, at least I am more moral. Man, and in college, they lose that illusion really quickly. Everybody does. David. King David had a lot of at least I have this. He is anointed by God to be the king of his people. He's the only person in Scripture that God says, He's a man after my own heart. He had all kinds of, at least I have is. And yet, he writes Psalm 3 earlier, in a place of total fear on the run, because his son overthrew him, because his family's in disarray, because he su- seduced his neighbor's wife, because his moral record is completely destroyed. He had all kinds of, at least I have this's, and one by one through his life, they all fall to the wayside. In some ways, if you're not sure what your final, at least I have this, is, or what your list of a couple of them are, the way you find out is when they get threatened. And when all of a sudden you realize, well, this, at least I have this, wow, maybe I don't even have that. When they get threatened, all of a sudden you realize what your at least I have this is are. And you see, as we come into the contact of the reality that we don't have control, that there's not stability, that ultimately there's not, and at least I have this, we respond with fear-driven striving. Fear is the result of trying to live as if we can assert control, we can assert some stability in our lives. It's that anxiety produced by our inability to guarantee the outcomes we want. It's that deep sense of unrest, that deep sense of terror and insecurity that comes when we're confronted with the reality That we can't maintain stability in this life the way we thought we could. And the very last, the very last, at least I have this, that we all hold on to. If everything else falls by the wayside, at least I have my capacity to strive. Moral record falls aside. Family falls apart. Finances fall apart. Social life falls apart. At least I can wake up tomorrow and work harder to fix this. That's the last one we hold on to. When everything falls apart, at least I have my striving. And that's, that's the last place that we have trouble letting go of. At least tomorrow I can put my head down and figure this out. And I can work on this. And that's why what's beautiful about this psalm, and this begins our path out of fear is that verse that maybe you recognized in verse 10. The last, at least I have this, that we all have, is our striving. And so God, into that context, says, be still. And literally the Hebrew word there is, cease striving. Stop hanging on to that one, too. The first step out of fear is actually to stop striving. Isn't that interesting? The first step out of fear is to stop striving. That's annoying, And, and... I want to give you a lot of qualifiers, right? Because I don't want to say, like, well, that doesn't mean not, not do anything. And we'd be spending too much time here if we tried to qualify it. It's kind of messy in some ways. But he says, be still. Literally, stop striving and know that I am God. Stop striving to control. Stop believing that you're going to get around that corner of your life, that you have these goals that are so close. And if you strive a little little bit harder, then you're going to get around that corner where finally life is manageable. You've got it managed. You've got it under control. Stop striving and aiming for that. You won't get there. You'll spend your whole life thinking you're almost there. And you won't get there. Stop thinking that fear is relieved when you finally have control. That's what we think, fear is relieved, when I finally have control. This is what an eating disorder is. An eating disorder is a response to fear in which you take hold of something that you can't control. I can't control my body. I'm afraid it'll betray me. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to grip it tight. And I'm going I'm to wrestle control from it. I'm going to hold on to it so tightly because I'm so afraid that it's going to betray me. And, and you're guided by the belief that if I can exert enough control... I will be released by this fear. But what happens is the exact opposite. The more control that you take hold of, the more and more fearful and insecure you get. You spiral into more fear and into more insecurity. And our lives, our lives are one big eating disorder. I've got to get control over this i got to get control over this. I've got to hold on to it more and more tightly. Then I won't be afraid. But you know what? You just get more and more afraid. What, what the Sabbath is, the Sabbath is beautiful for a thousand reasons, but one of the things that it is, is it's an inoculation against fear. It's literally God. One of the things going on is He's saying, stop working for a little bit. It, it's an inoculation against fear. Stop having control for a little bit and rest. And see that it's still okay if you don't work for a little bit. Uh, the Sabbath is your cheat day in your diet. That's what it is. It's your spiritual cheat day where it's like, I'm going to stop striving to make everything right for them, and I'm just going to finally rest in Jesus. I'm just going to stop trying to have control over everything so that my life will finally get lined up the way I want it. And I'm going to do what I wish I could do but don't think I can afford to do, which is rest. And isn't that good news? The first step, kind of out of fear, is to stop. Stop thinking that fear is relieved when we gain control, and also stop thinking that fear is relieved when we can change our circumstances. So, don't believe fear is not relieved when you have enough control, but fear is also not relieved when your circumstances are changed from the ones you didn't like, whether it's about your doing or someone else's. The Psalm is not God's our refuge and strength, the very present help, when all the hard stuff goes away. God's our refuge and strength, the very present help, in trouble. Therefore we won't fear, even though the earth gives way. The context of the psalm is saying, real fearlessness is fearlessness in the midst of difficult circumstances. Fearlessness is not peace, when difficult circumstances leave, fearlessness is peace in the middle of the hard circumstances. A present help in trouble, when the, when the, when the nations are raging. Life is going to be hard. The ground's going to shake. The nations are going to rage. And the more things that we wrap our fingers around, trying to manage so that we'll feel in control, the opposite's going to happen. We're going to become more and more fearful. We're going to feel like we have less and less control. The more we stru- trust in our striving, the more and more fearful we're going to be. And So in that context, he says, be still. Cease striving. And the latter half of that verse, uh, be still and know that I am God. So stop and get a sense of the power of God. Be still and know that I am God. This is the second half of that verse. Stop trying to have control and know that I'm in control. The verse is not stop. This is the way I read it for a long time. Maybe you too. Stop and withdraw from the chaos of life and go out into nature on Sunday morning and have a Bible time by yourself and eat a saltine and have some grape juice. I've done that, so if you feel bad that I'm making fun of that, that's okay. I'm there with you. But this is not stop and withdraw. Stop and draw back out in nature and get away from the chaos of life. Get away from the difficulties within your family. And that's a lot of times the way we have kind of maybe have taught it or thought it meant. But it's actually be still and know that I am God. He's painting a picture of chaos in those previous nine verses. And he's saying, stare right into the teeth of the chaos of life. And there, not in nature withdrawn, but there in the middle of it, be still and know that I am God. It's easy to be still in the trees on Saturday morning by yourself. God's saying, no, no, no. I want you to stand in the middle of all the craziness and there, stop striving and get a sense of my power. Know that I am in control. The song unfolds and you see the chaos and the instability of the world and you see that it doesn't win. You see that it's not bigger than God. In fact, actually, actually in verse 6, 7, 8, 9, you actually see that in the midst of that chaos of life, God's kind of behind it all. It doesn't overwhelm Him. He's actually kind of in control of it all. The nations rage and the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. He's there. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Behold the works of the Lord. How he has brought desolations on the earth. The chaos of life. God's in touch with it all. He's there, actually working in it. He's not surprised. He's not overcome. He's not out of control of our circumstances. And this is the goodness of God's sovereignty. He's so good that even when chaos and the circumstances seem so evil that they are going to overwhelm us, he will even use. This is how good he is. He will even use the things that man intends for evil for good. This is what he does with Joseph. His brothers hate him. They sell him into slavery. Their hatred is evil. Is from the devil. It's sin. They're selling him into slavery is evil. God is so good that He can even take evil and make good things out of it. Through that, He actually saves the nation of Israel from drought and famine. When years later, Joseph draws all of the people of Israel into Egypt and they are fed and saved. God sovereign, even in the chaos, even in the hard things, even more so when religious leaders saw this guy that they thought was a heretic and they executed him as a heretic out of anger and out of jealousy and out of misunderstanding of Scripture, what does God do in that instance? He saves the world when they kill Jesus. God is so good that He even uses chaos and He even uses the things that man tries to do for evil to make good things happen. That's how good He is. His goodness overwhelms evil. In the midst of chaos, know that. God promises that He's not going to put you anything, put you through anything that He can't walk you through. And in fact, in fact, it's going to be in the midst of trials that you're going to grow in faith and in wisdom and in trust according to Scripture. According to James 1, you're going to grow in grace and knowledge and hope of God. And what you're not going to get on the other end of difficult circumstances is you're not going to get control. You're not going to get a different set of circumstances. You're going to get something far better. You're going to get a deeper sense of rest in your soul that God is sovereign. And that He holds you in His hand. That He's a refuge. That He's your strength. And what happens is when you get a sense of that, fear begins to die. Fearlessness, it's born and bred actually in the middle of adversity, not by the removal of adversity. It's born and bred in the middle of adversity. And it's not because we set our minds to it and we can overcome an adversity. One of the things I tell Stanford students that they all believe and I want to believe, but it's a lie, is that if you put your mind to it, you can do anything. That's not true. It's not true. If you put your mind to it, you can do some things. That's true. Some of us, if we put our mind to it, we can do a couple of things. And if for some of us, we put our mind to it, we can do a couple more things. There's, there's levels of ability. Unfortunately, that's the reality, right? But If you put your mind to it, you can't do anything. There are a lot of things that I can't do. There are a lot of things that you can't do. There are a lot of things that can overwhelm me. There are a lot of things that can overwhelm you, no matter how hard you put your mind to it. Time to be conquered. But we are so easily conquered by circumstances. We're not that strong, but God is. He is our strength in the midst of our weakness. And what adversity does, adversity is great and we need it and it's God's love for us because it peels away all our sense of self-sufficiency until we have nothing left, until we even give up on our striving. And at that place, you realize, all I have is the promise that God's merciful. And when you realize that's it, that you don't even have your striving anymore and all you have is the promise that God's merciful, okay, that's where fearlessness is born and bred. Because it's in that place that we cling to God and God alone, we find out He's strong. He's our refuge. He is faithful. He is full of grace and mercy. When you have God and you have nothing else, you are fearless. Stop. Get a sense of the power of God. Thirdly, get among the people of God. This is a constant theme all throughout the Psalms. It's always kind of in the application. We've well, we got to stop and we've got to be a part of this really messy, really annoying thing about which we can all legitimately complain a ton that's called the church. Notice what it says. It doesn't say it would be wrong for you to say, quote this verse and says, you know, it says God is my refuge and strength. No, it doesn't say that. It says God is our refuge and strength. It doesn't say, therefore, I'm not going to fear even though the earth gives way that's not what it says it says therefore we will not fear that the earth gives way the lord of hosts it doesn't say in verse 7 the lord of hosts is with me it says the lord of hosts is with us the god of jacob is our fortress reiterated again in verse 11 what is it that's not shaken it's not doesn't say I'm not shaking. It doesn't say you're not shaking. It says we're not shaken. The film, th- this psalm actually falls into a little genre called the Psalms of Zion. The Psalms of the people of God together. The city of God's people. That's what Zion is. And Revelation 21 is, is, a, is a chapter Bible we need to read every day. And it describes the city of God. It says, And then I saw the holy city Jerusalem, the people of God, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be His people. The church is the bride of Christ, the heavenly city, the people of God. This is the point. Fear is not going to be conquered on your own. God doesn't envision us having the ability to conquer fear on our own. Fear wants to lead us out into loneliness because it knows it knows that we can actually have faith for each other. Earlier this year, we moved here from South Carolina. I'm from Alabama. I live from Mississippi. We worked in South Carolina. We're Southerners. Shocker, right? At some point during the year, we're going to have an existential crisis where it's like, oh my gosh, we're from the South. And Palo Alto is kind of not really the South. You know, that was going to happen. That realization was going to happen at some point. It happened in March, and I wanted to leave. Because it was hard. And I didn't know if I could understand Stanford students. I didn't know if I could serve them well. And I was insecure about my ability. I wanted to be close to my family. I wanted my wife close to her family. I wanted my children close to their cousins. And I was afraid that I'd made a big mistake. And David Jones, the former RAF campus minister at Stanford, who's also our pastor now in Palo Alto... What happened is, in the midst of that fear, he came to RUF one night, went to Bible study with me, with the college students, and we went to this pub right down the road afterwards. And he and I went and hung out after I would talked and after I would stood up in front of students and preached the gospel, but the entire time was afraid that I would made a horrible mistake by coming here and preaching the gospel. And this is what David said to me afterwards when we were hanging out. He said, the church has called you here, Britton. You're the son of the king, so preach like it. He had faith when I didn't. And his faith buoyed mine. At that point in time, I didn't want to read the Bible, and I didn't need to read the Bible. I needed to have someone read it to me. At that point in time, I didn't want to pray, and in some ways, I didn't need to pray. I needed to have someone pray for me. And that's what David did. We can actually have faith for each other. We can't conquer fear alone. We need to come into each other's fear and begin to hold each other up inside of those fears. We come into the rich contact and the security of God through each other. In the church, through friends, by the preaching of the word, and the sacraments. Through hearing people sing. There are times I don't want to sing. And it is good in those times to hear God's people singing around me. It is good. So we've got to stop. We've got to get a sense of the power of God. We've got to see that He's our fortress, not my fortress going to be with the people of God. And lastly, verse 4 tells us the last thing. Verse 4 actually says, Seek life in Jesus. Now it reads, There's a river whose stream make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. There's a river whose stream make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. There's something in the center of the city. It's a river and it's a source of gladness and it's spoken of Elsewhere. As spoken of in Ezekiel 47, the prophet has this vision, and it's a vision where he sees a river flowing out of the temple from the center of the city. And in this vision, the prophet Ezekiel sees this river flow from the center of the temple, and it goes out in the city, and everywhere it goes, it brings life. It's a river of life. Revelation 22, still describing the city of God, John says this the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Jesus says in John 7, 37, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture said, out of his heart will flow the rivers of living water. Water in Scripture is the source of life. And all of Scripture points towards this. Jesus is the water of life. That's what's being spoken of in verse 4. And drinking deeply of that water is simply believing him and trusting to his love, trusting in his love for his people. The solution to fear is his love. So at first John actually says, perfect love casts out fear. You see, the solution to fear is not us having control. This is the interesting point. This is really this is everything right here. The solution to fear in your life is someone else loving you. The solution to fear in my life is the love of someone else. That's what casts out fear. That's what John's saying in 1 John when he says perfect love casts out fear. Being loved is the only thing that will kill fear at the, end, at the end of the day. And The way love is described in the Old Testament, there's this cool Hebrew word. If there's a cool Hebrew word to get a tattoo of, it's this word "hesed." That's the one you should get. Ask your pastor to write it out for you. <laughs> and that word chesed means steadfast love, covenantal love. And the way one children's storybook Bible writer calls it, it says, always and forever, never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. That's the only thing that removes fear. If you are loved by Jesus, the King of creation, the God of Jacob, the Lord Almighty, if you're loved by Him, then name one thing that's worth fearing. You can't. A good friend of ours, a girl named Claire, she got married six or seven years ago. She does not like to dance. She's a dear friend of ours. She hates dancing. She feels silly in front of people when she dances. She's terrified of it. There's one day in her life when without alcohol she danced crazy in front of everybody she knew She completely lost herself in dancing. The activity that she was more socially afraid of than anything else. Do you know what day that was? It was the day of her wedding. It was the climax of the experience of her husband's love for her. And you know what happened? During that climactic moment when she experienced the sweetest thing, that husband binding himself covenantally to her forever, you know what happened? She became fearless. She danced in front of everybody she was afraid of dancing in front of. She danced crazy. Because love kills fear. You see, it was his love, it was the covenant of marriage, his binding love, that killed her fear. And she started dancing. So what the two options really lay before us is this. Will you go into the fear of your life thinking, I'm going to trust my ability to gain control. It'll kill you. What's offered in Scripture, what's offered in Jesus, is the option to trust to another's love. To find rest and refuge and strength that comes from resting in and leaning on another and giving up on yourself and saying, I've got nothing. I've got nothing but the covenant love of Jesus. I've got nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing but the promise that God's in control. Nothing but the promise that Jesus saves those who trust in Him. Nothing but the hope that Jesus' atonement Has restored me to God because I, on my own, trying to get control, I can't get it right. All I have is the covenant love of God. If you have nothing but Jesus, you have that capacity to become completely fearless. Even in the midst of the nations raging and the ground shifting under your feet, even in the midst of the hardest circumstances, it's someone else's love breaking into your heart. It makes you fearless. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your love is not simply affection, that it's not simply you liking us, dear Lord, but it is a whole different order of love that is covenantal, that it is binding, that you have knit yourselves to us, yourself to us, and I pray, dear Lord, that you had press that reality deep into our hearts so we become fearless because we know we're the adopted sons and daughters of the Most High God. In your name we pray. Amen.